Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan lists and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast listeners can go to banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code SUSTAINABLE to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's banzoogle.com, promo code SUSTAINABLE, caps, no caps, it all works for the promo code. I just want to say on a personal level, I've known the Banzoogle team for a long time. They are great humans. They are always working super hard. And I run into them in non-pandemic times at conferences. I run into them in pandemic times at conferences. They're always networking. They're always connecting. And they're always on top of updating their platform for you to make sure they are integrating with everyone. I also personally love how they have their mailing list tools integrated as that is really the foundation of building a sustainable music career and a huge element of what we're going to talk about on today's podcast. So head over to banzoogle.com and use the promo code sustainable for 15% off the first year of any subscription. Welcome to episode 19 of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. I'm your host, Emily White. Before we get into my interview with artivist Steph Reed, I wanted to review chapter 10, which is the revenue stream checklist. And I've promised this throughout the podcast as uh, we've discussed different revenue streams and how to collect on them. But this is your time to double check, make sure you have everything in place. And hopefully this helps you to do that. So some quick background. I was inspired to write this book and this chapter, or at least like the second half of the title and collect all revenue streams a few years ago when we took on two national acts. I think I've referenced this throughout the podcast and I kept finding money from them or for them from them. Um, And really that's happened with a lot of artists I've worked with over the years. And of course that is, a huge part of the manager's job, but I realized if this is happening to artists that people have heard of, uh, including Julia Nunes, that the industry kind of holds up to, you know, a modern DIY standard of like, be like Julia. And that's true in many ways, but if she was missing money and she's supposed to be like the poster child for all this stuff, then, you know, what about the rest of us? So that was my inspiration. And again, um, some quick history, because I think that can be important. Um, You know, something that I love about the modern music industry is numbers are transparent in theory. You have a lot more access to information than in uh, the pre-digital physical music days. So I I have this tweet uh, used with permission in the book from Andy Partridge uh, of the band XTC. And he says, 
Do you know I have absolutely no idea how many albums XTC sold over the years? Record companies never tell you, as then they would have to pay you. Millions of albums? Sure, but how many? What territories? Many times I asked Virgin, Cooking Vinyl, TBT, they will never tell you. So I came out of that era, um, the pre-digital era in the 90s, as a teenager, and this was always something I was hyper aware of. So again, I think that's a huge benefit of the modern music industry. Yes, a lot of these revenue streams are disparate and can be a pain to set up, but once you do and once you have them in place, you actually should know you know, how many streams you have, how much music you've sold and and things like that. It doesn't mean things can't get better. That's for sure. You know, I'm all about uh, the pipe dream of of Spotify and um, streaming companies giving you your fans data that they are making billions of dollars on. Um, But one step at a time and and we're doing the best we can. I also have a example in the book with a short email from one of my co-managers on a super modern artist. And obviously I took out the names, but it says he, he, he wrote to a label and said, hi name, not sure if we ever received quarter one, quarter two statements for this year, please advise. Thank you. I mean, that's ridiculous, you know, and, and I'm not saying there aren't good labels out there or people that pay their royalties, but um, yeah, it's, you don't always get what you sign up for. Right. And so what's so cool about, you know, taking this power back for yourself is that you do know where all the pieces are. So hopefully I can help you to keep those pieces organized. Um, Also, before I go through the revenue stream checklist, I do want to mention neighboring rights because I don't think we've touched on that throughout this podcast. Let me break this down. And I think we've covered this, but There are three countries in the United States that do not pay performance royalties on sound recordings. So what we're talking about there is, you know, if you get played on the radio, your songwriting side gets paid through your PRO. Um, But that is not the case for the master recording side in the United States, Iran, and North Korea. And the example that's often used, I mean, there's countless examples, but Aretha Franklin's Respect. Um, obviously she as a singer and performer made that song what it is. Um, but every time it gets played on the radio, the master recording side does not get any public performance royalties. Um, we definitely talked about that in the episode with Don Passman. I asked him if he ever thought that would change in the U S he feels that, um, the U S radio lobby is, is too strong, but long story short, if you recorded your music in a country, that's not the United States. Uh, Iran or North Korea, you are most likely owed neighboring rights. And the reason it's called that is because, again, there's two main rights in music. So um, you're collecting on your songwriting rights for public performance royalties through your PRO. But then there's that neighbor right of the master recording. And again, unfortunately, the United States, Iran and North Korea do not pay those royalties. And there's great groups like future of music that lobby to change that. But um, yeah, so uh, if you did record your music outside of the United States, um, there are companies, there there still is not a DIY option, unfortunately. Um, But if you want to reach out to countries like Centric or Premier, or if you're working with a music publisher, they might be able to help help set you up to collect on your neighboring rights. So I did want to make sure we cover the entire modern music industry. So I would be remiss if I didn't. Uh, cover neighboring rights. 
Okay. So a few main things I want to make sure I get across in this episode and, and in this chapter is um, back to those two artists that we took on a few years ago. I wanted to show them how much music, how much music, how much money they could count on. Um, I've, I've mentioned, or I've referenced one artist in particular that we took on um, who had a lot of debt and she had a very high rent price. So I kind of had to show her like, okay, here's what you can count on before we even start working with you and hopefully building things up. And actually um, she, we, we got her to breaking even, which was like huge. That was a couple years ago. And she's charting as of this week on the billboard chart. So um, yeah, su- super proud of her and um, huge shout out to my business partner, Melissa Garcia, who gets the vast majority of management credit for that. That's for sure. Okay. So I was finding money for these people. I wanted to project uh, this income for musicians. So I created uh, a revenue stream spreadsheet that is linked in the book. It's just an open Google sheet that you can use. I'll throw it in the show notes. I'm really not saying this to sell books, but I literally go through a step-by-step process in the book of like how to work with this spreadsheet in case that's overwhelming. Um, But essentially you are able to plug in all of your releases and project what you will be making, I believe monthly and annually is how I did it. So it can hopefully feel like a real job, quote unquote, real job in a good way. And you know, roughly what kind of money you're going to have coming in. But I would say to me, almost more importantly, the point of the spreadsheet is if you are missing a column in the spreadsheet, if you type in your releases and realize that you have a blank column because all of the revenue streams are columns, then you're missing money. And it, it, it's happened to just about every artist I've ever worked with at the highest of levels. So it's, it may very well be happening to you as well. So I'll pop that link in the show notes. But again, the book has like the deep dive on how to really work with and interact with that spreadsheet. But back to the uh, vegetarian meat of this chapter, the revenue stream checklist, there are nine revenue streams that I feel, uh, I don't feel I know, musicians uh, are missing out on if they are not collecting. (laughs) That was a little convoluted, but there's nine revenue streams that you need to be collecting on if you write and record slash release your music and play live. And you know, we will have manager Randy Nichols uh, on on an episode in a, a, f- a few episodes. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, I um, I mentioned this in that episode. In, in music business programs, I don't know a single program that requires knowing these nine revenue streams for seniors that graduate. So for any educators that are listening, I highly recommend that. I really feel like we're failing students if they can't name these nine revenue streams. And whether you're in a music business program or not, it's obviously to your massive advantage to have these memorized. So they are distribution, right? So that's going to be your distro kid, your CD baby, um, whatever you're using for distribution to get your music on Spotify and, and the digital service providers. I consider direct-to-fan digital distribution a separate revenue stream. That's going to be making sure your music is available for sale on your website and or Bandcamp, which I know we've hammered home in depth and the importance of the data that comes along with that instead of just focusing on um, 
streaming royalties and, and not getting any of that fan data. The third one is performing rights organizations. So I, I am so fortunate to have listeners from all over the world, but in the U.S. that's primarily going to be, you know, ASCAP or BMI. Um, we've gone through this in depth as well. Um, PRS in the U.K., SISM in France, SOCAN in Canada, all that good stuff. Just sign up for one as, as a songwriter and, and you're good for life, although you need to keep registering your works, which um, I know is a pain, but is important. Um, the fourth one is music publishing. And my gosh, if there is a subtitle for this podcast, it is if you are just collecting on your PRO royalties and not collecting on your music publishing, you are missing out on revenue. So I've been a huge advocate of Song Trust um, before they sponsored episodes on this podcast. So um, Song Trust is how you can go and collect on your music publishing revenue in addition to your performing rights organization. You really need to be signed up for both. Obviously, you can work with a music publisher. That's great, too. We definitely covered that in, in depth on this podcast and in the book. And if you go back to the Song Trust sponsored episodes, which I I know is the Melissa Garcia marketing episode off the top of my head. I think they sponsored the Don Passman episode. There's a promo code in that um, for, for discount because there is uh, a cash fee to sign up. I mean, true transparency. I don't love that, but um, everything else is commission after that. So hopefully that promo code can help you get into the song trust system. Um, sound exchange, um, that's going to be your non-interactive your non-interactive internet radio streaming royalties. So that's going to be um, Pandora, Sirius, stuff like that. Um, so make sure you're signed up for Sound Exchange. Patreon is really the only company I have in here. I, I want you to care. I mean, it's not why I have it in there, but I, I wish Patreon cared. Um, I've, I've shared that with them, with them, but you know, that's a, that's a genuine endorsement. It's a great place um, to basically have a fan club and offer some really unique um, direct to fan offerings as, as we've talked about throughout the podcast. Online merchandise should be a viable revenue stream for you. Um, and as we talked about, you need to share that link. You need to do sales and specials. You need to get creative with it like Julia Nunes did in uh, the merch episode, because if it's just a link sitting on your website, um, you know, not as many people are going to find it. So maybe like every month think about, okay, what's a different Thing I'm going to do to share and, and push out my online merch store. Um, the next revenue stream is live performances and webcasts. Um, at the time, I actually had that as one revenue stream. I, I, I could argue with myself and say, you know, mid-pandemic, hopefully someday post-pandemic, um, those will be two separate revenue streams because we've certainly learned a ton in the pandemic about how to monetize webcasts and engage and interact, interact with fans that way. There are, there is a ton of investment continuing to go into the, I would just say the live streaming space, but some of the companies are like the virtual event experience space, but it's true because they're creating a lot of cool tools and a lot of great ways uh, for you to connect with your fans. Also ask those companies for the fan email addresses and data. Most are going to give them to you. So live performances and webcasts, that can be separate. That can be one thing, right? If you're doing a live show and you're webcasting it, I mean, a live show like at a venue with, with tickets sold and stuff. And then live merchandise is an additional revenue stream, which we've talked to artists throughout this podcast about um, when their hearts break, when they see an artist that, you know, plays to a packed room and is amazing and actually has been doing it for a while and then just 
doesn't have any merch. And you will hear in the episode with Randy, um, Randy Nichols in the future, um, where he's like, you know, I hear artists complain about Spotify royalties, but then they have no merch. Um, so control the controllables, right? And um, make sure you have live merchandise. And we talked about even if you don't have a budget, you can get creative with that. So those are the nine slash maybe 10, right? If we're going to consider webcasting different revenue stream that like you are missing out on if you're not doing these things and you're writing and recording and releasing your music. However, uh, I also have bonus revenue streams. Um, so this, I probably, I probably could have included VIP live show offerings, not to get ahead of myself in, in one from before. But yeah, I mean, the, the core of this book was like, okay, like I said, if you're writing and recording slash releasing music, and I should have said playing live too, here is what you're missing if you're not collecting on all these things. But here are bonus revenue streams. I'm jumping around a little bit on the list, but I'll just give an example before I read the list of bonus revenue streams. Sync licenses, right? Like even artists that land a lot of syncs, um, they can't necessarily rely on that income consistently. So I, that's a main difference between the core revenue streams that you that are owed to you every quarter or whenever the payouts are versus like, you know, we heard Zoe Keating in the foreword of, of the podcast and book, and she lands a lot of sync placements. She called them mana from heaven, right? So um, even someone who lands a lot of sync placements uh, can't land it, but obviously, or can't necessarily count on that as consistent revenue. Um, but there are options in the, in the spreadsheet that I share to, um, to plug that information as well. So everything's in one place. Okay. Bonus revenue streams, VIP live show offerings. We talked about that at all levels. Um, live recordings. That's a space that I don't think artists are doing nearly enough in with modern technology. And I totally understand why. Um, you know, we're particular about audio quality, understandably, and hard on ourselves when we, when we make mistakes, but I just think it's so empowering in the modern music industry because you weren't allowed to record your own shows in the pre-digital era if you were signed to a label, and now you can. And obviously there are bands in the lineage and artists in the lineage of the Grateful Dead that I'm sure are doing that really well, um, but I would love to see more artists, you know, posting, um, you know, live show audio, the whole tour, like it's fun to hear, you know, they said Milwaukee or whatever show you were at or whatever. So I, I'd like to see a lot more in that space. Set.fm, I believe can help you with that. Um, the next bonus revenue stream is catalog releases on vinyl, as well as the coalition of independent music stores distribution. So when we took on those national acts, they had catalogs and not everything was on vinyl. So there you go. Launch a pre-order, start getting that rolling. You know, there's more revenue. Sheet music. Uh, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but um, when I was working with the Dresden Dolls, who are a keyboard drum duo, we would get a lot of requests for sheet music. And Amanda Palmer, being who she is, ended up turning the sheet music book into this amazing, uh, you know, album companion to the Dresden Dolls' first album that had, you know, handwritten lyrics and never before seen photographs and really kind of stories behind the song. I mean, it was, um, it was hard to put together. Um, and it was expensive because of that, because it had all those things. I think it ended up retailing for like $50, 
But then it became so much more than a sheet music book. It became like a coffee table book and a memento for fans who can't even read um, piano music. So take that inspiration for, for what you will. Music lessons. I have like, seriously, one of my favorite photos ever of Brian Biglione of the Dresden Dolls in the book with one of his drum students. Um, that guy has played in Nine Inch Nails. He's played, you know, in world-class bands all over the world. And um, yeah, I love that he shares his time through through music lessons. I've, I've seen him with photos with little kids, with adults, with fans. Um, and, and, and I know other artists that have done, you know, singing lessons over Skype and stuff. And you can charge more than, you know, like, obviously no offense to these people, but like, your local music school, uh, drum teacher or, or vocal teacher. So keep that in mind. That's a really cool one-on-one interaction for your fans. Podcast revenue. I'm so glad I have this in here. I was hesitating, uh, if I was gonna share some thoughts on this. So this is a good reminder. Um, this is my second podcast. This is my second book. First one is interning 101. Like anything, I've learned a ton making the second podcast. It's it's better than interning 101. And I do have a podcast idea um, that I want to launch in the future that I think I have shared on this podcast, but hopefully that one will be even better. And when I, you know, when I started putting this podcast together, I asked around like, okay, what are people using for podcast distribution? And everyone's like, anchor, anchor. Oh my gosh, anchor. It's like, Okay. I was hesitant because I saw that they were owned by Spotify. So I had a feeling I'm like, this is just content creation for Spotify. But I was like, you know, people are using it. Music people are telling me they like it. I will check it out. Um, I know this is about revenue streams, but I will, I'm going to share my thoughts on Anchor right now because I do think the space is ripe for disruption because I've not been super psyched and I will explain why. Um, first, this was more just like annoying. Um, there is a file size limit on Anchor. Maybe that's the case with every podcast dis- distributor, but my wonderful engineer, Nathan Kane, has to divide every episode up into like eight parts and we upload it that way. Um, I probably could have figured out how to do that, but if I didn't have him, I wouldn't know how to do, do that. And it's just a pain. And um, yeah, I mean, plenty of podcasts are much larger files than what Anchor's minimum is. So I thought that was super weird, but that's not totally the end of the world. Um, They hook you in with a really high CPM rate. Um, CPM is clicks per millions, I think, even though it's not really millions. Um, You can Google that to learn more about it. I think their CPM rate was like $15 or something. It was really high. And so I started making royalties um, immediately. Uh, I had anchor ads, if, if some of you heard that, um, to try to make it authentic because I, I was having these red flags about anchor. I included my Twitter handle in every ad I share, just being like, if you want to know what my experience has been like with anchor, please tweet at me and I will, um, share that with you. Um, so yeah, so that CPM rate is so much higher than what musicians get paid for their music on Spotify. I'm like disgusted even saying that. And when I shared that with musicians, um, they were like, so should I just distribute my music through Anchor instead? And and they shouldn't for two reasons. One, you're missing out on additional revenue streams um, like me- mechanical royalties and, and music publishing that we've, we've covered throughout this podcast. Um, but two, that those, they, that's just a, that's just to lure people in um, because 
I hit about $50 in royalties, which is high for streaming. Um, and as soon as I, I think I hit 52, 15 or something, and then it stopped. And so right now, if you are listening on Spotify, I mean, I'm not discouraging you. I'm just sharing the landscape on this. Um, I, I just created this, you know, this podcast that's charting on six continents. I, hopefully we can get some scientists listening in Antarctica that are musicians maybe. Um, but yeah, this thing is a hit. This thing is a success and Spotify doesn't pay me anything for it. So when you get frustrated with your Spotify royalties as a musician, just know that podcast creators um, get nothing uh, from Spotify via Anchor, which is owned by Spotify. It's really, really messed up. And then I'm not just trying to like rag on Anchor. I just want to be um, transparent and give you the, um, yeah, just to share my experience. Because I do think musicians should start podcasts, but I'll, I'll get into that in a second. And then the other element that was just like super annoying um, is they don't distribute to, Anchor does not distribute to Amazon Music, which just shows that, um, again, Anchor is owned by Spotify. Amazon Music is a competitor of Spotify. So they're just trying to block Amazon Music, which was really embarrassing because someone at Amazon Music wanted to promote this podcast and he's like, oh, it's not even here. It, it is fairly easy to add it manually, but like, give me a break. Like, can you imagine if you worked with DistroKid or CD Baby and they they didn't automatically, you know, deliver to a major DSP like like Amazon Music? So that was ridiculous. And then they also distribute to a podcast platform called Radio Public. And that flat out has not worked since I started this podcast. And I've contacted Anchor about it a million times. Well, not a million times because they're like, oh, you have to contact Radio Public. I have tried to contact Radio Public through every medium you can imagine, their support ticket, social media, all that stuff. I've never heard back. So Anchor, just drop Radio Public if you're not going to help us. So I know what I was going to say in addition to the revenue stuff. And then of course, so right now, Anchor is owned by Spotify. It is just content create, you know, they're just, um, we're just creating content for Spotify to, I guess, distract from musicians and then not, you don't get those royalties. But you know, music is the canary in the coal mine as far as um, really like file sizes go and, and culture can even go, right? Like music was the first to break through in the digital world because of MP3s and then television shows and then films because those are larger files. And so because we're the canary in the coal mine, um, we, we learn and get burned for better or for worse, right? And so, you know, there have been musicians and people like me just begging for fan data, right? Because I literally talked about it on this episode, like, um, you know, the DSPs just keep all that. Well, they're doing the same thing to podcasters, right? So when I launch my next podcast, which will be a hashtag I voted festival podcast, I don't know who you are, you know? So um, uh, Bon Iver's manager tweeted at me a new um, podcast distributor to try. So um, if I have a good experience with that, I will update the show notes and I will definitely post about that on my social media. This is not to dissuade you from making a podcast um, because, you know, what Anchor is going to say is, um, oh, well, you can ask your listeners for money. Um, I'm not going to ask you guys for money. Like, you're musicians. I feel weird about that. Um, however, uh, I think you should launch a podcast if that calls to you. I, we had a musician who did because he felt like he wasn't 
authentic, you know, connecting enough authentically with his fans on social media and wanted to, you know, have more in-depth conversations. And I thought that was freaking brilliant. So there is nothing wrong with, you know, musicians saying, Hey, if you want to support this and me, you know, here's the best way to do so. You could also do like a sale or special each week. Um, I'm not, you know, I didn't ask you guys for money, like out of insecurity. I just felt like it was wrong. Um, because I'm trying to teach you how to collect money. So, um, I've been fortunate that, um, I did, I was able to get some, um, sponsors that, uh, I feel really good about for this podcast. And, um, it's not why I made this podcast, but it just continues the life cycle of this book and drives book sales, um, which is the case for you as a musician as well, right? Like if you're putting out a podcast, um, that's going to, um, drive traffic back to your music. That's content for you to share on your website and social media. And also, you know, I know a musician who has a podcast, shout out to Kulla, who was on this podcast. And he often has, you know, guests on Cullacast, um, who are people he just wants to learn from, right? Like, uh, that's how, you know, that's how Kulla and I met. Uh, we booked him for the data for I Voted Festival, because he was one of the top streaming artists in Wisconsin. And he wrote to us and said, Oh, cool. I have this podcast. You know, if anyone from the I voted team would like to be on it. And I was like, great, what a good idea, right? Like we can promote and spread the word on I voted, um, in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin, which was definitely a state we were focused on, um, during the last election. And that is so different from frankly, uh, you know, I'm from Wisconsin, like other Wisconsin musicians that sometimes can be physically very in my face and seem to like want stuff from me. Um, so look, just be yourself, be genuine. But I thought, you know, I just think that's really interesting. It's like, I formed a connection with this artist Kula because he offered me something of value. Right. And that is different from a musician physically being a close talker in my face at music conferences and, and making me uncomfortable. But regardless, I've shared all this information with you for free. And that was really the point of, of this podcast and book. Okay. So launch podcast, if that calls to you. And again, I will update my social media and the show notes uh, when I find a podcast distributor I feel good about. Um, more bonus revenue streams, branding, sponsorships, and endorsements. This one's totally a bonus one. I understand why there are panels and topics about this at conferences and stuff, but I've never really liked it because it's not for everyone for a few reasons. But at the same time, there are brands and endorsements at all levels, right? So if you have a strong local following and there's a local company that you love and you want to get involved with them, um, you know, and, and trade some posts, you know, for money, uh, if you have a large enough following or even promotion, right? Like throw that, see if that company's up to, you know, um, help promote your shows and, and you'll add their name, um, you know, as a presenter or something. So, um, but yeah, but obviously none of that's ever guaranteed. So that's why it's a bonus revenue stream. Speaking engagements, um, you know, reach out to local universities, local schools, um, see if they would like a musician to come, you know, a modern musician to come in and speak. Also, you know, you can post about that. You can share that content. I do a lot of speaking engagements and I've had other professionals ask me how that happens. Um, it all comes to me. And I think one reason it happens is I am good about posting that stuff. Like, excited to speak at Yale or whatever, like, and then afterwards, like had a great time speaking at 
I've never spoken at Boston University. I don't know why that came to mind, but what up? South by Southwest or whatever, right? And, and sharing content from that. Um, sync, sync, license, sync licenses I covered, of course, only if landed, you own your rights and are not unrecouped to a label or publishing company. Um, YouTube royalties I don't have as a core revenue stream um, because they are quite minimal. I guess I, sh I, I, you know, maybe when we do another edition of this book, I guess I could have moved YouTube royalties over into core revenue streams. I really like IND Music, which is now owned by Live Nation to collect your YouTube royalties on the master side. So um, if you're doing, you know, significant numbers on YouTube, and usually that means in the millions of views, I mean, do it if you're getting tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, do it anyway, right? Pennies are pennies. Um, but I think that's why I, I moved it into this category. Of course, um, there's revenue playing on other artists' recordings or session work and shows. Make sure you're getting paid for that stuff, as well as producing, mixing, mastering, and remixing other artists' recordings or arranging songs for other artists. Okay, that's your revenue stream checklist. Um, now I'm going to let myself and Steph Reed take it away. Um, he's such an amazing example of a modern DIY artist and he loves the spreadsheet, which is very exciting to me because when I put it together, I was like, oh my gosh, is any, is any musician going to do this? But I've gotten a lot of really cool feedback from musicians that it's been helpful to them. So um, yeah, I think we've covered every uh, revenue stream that's owed to you and bonus ones. So if you think I missed anything, let me know at mwizzle, at emwizzle on Twitter. And otherwise I will let uh, artivist Steph Reed and I take it away. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Emily White, and this is How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, author, and podcast host, Emily White. Um, today, we're going to focus on, we're going to focus on a few things, but we're supposed to focus on Chapter 10, uh, Revenue Stream Checklist. Um, and I'll just go ahead and introduce my guest, and, and then we'll dig in, and I'll explain what we're going to do, not to, like, intimidate you, Steph, but... Um, Welcome, uh, musician, activist, and educator, Steph Reed. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm well. Uh, thank, thanks for being on the podcast, and, and thanks thanks for everything. I think this is the first time we've spoken verbally, which feels weird. Yeah, we've been, like, Instagram friends for, like, almost a year, and just, like, texting and texting and emailing and checking in. So it's an honor to, like, I'm look, I'm a fan. That's it. I'm a fan and I'm whatever you need. I'm here. <laughs> You're too kind. Well, I am also a fan. Remind me, because I was thinking um, before this, how did we connect in the first place? Cam Franklin, the great, nice. the great Cam Franklin out of yeah. Houston, Texas. Awesome. Um, well, Cam is going to be our next podcast guest. So we're very <laughs> excited Cam about so that. Much. She's like my Shiro. You know what I mean? Like she's like the most badass. Um, talented, driven leader and like powerhouse. She's just, she's a force and I'm grateful to be able to like just know her and to be able to share space when, you know, she's great. Yeah. I am also grateful to know her. The, the bit that I do, I, I look forward to getting her or getting to know her more on, on the next episode. Um, so even though today's chapter or today's episode is on um, chapter 11, I believe I said, um, I know it's revenue stream checklist. Um, I am going to take you through the book a little bit. I've been doing this with other artists and just I, kind of. I, actually, chapter 10 is. Sorry, my I bad. Got book out, I have my book out right now, so I'm just sorry. Very good. <laughs> you know, I think I had um, K 
Cam on my mind because she's going to be chapter 11. But thank you. Thank you for keeping me honest over here. Chapter 11 um, compete and grow, not bankruptcy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so today we're doing chapter 10, yes. um, Revenue Stream Checklist. But I want to take you through the book a little bit, um, which is what I've been doing with other artists. And, um, you know, so you can share with us you know, what's working, what isn't working, you know, through the lens of a sustainable music career, if that sure. sounds good. Sure. Awesome. I mean, the first question isn't in the book, but um, tell us about yourself. Where are you from and, and when did you begin making music? Um, I'm based out of Brooklyn, New York. Um, I've been making music since, seriously, I, I think I made the conscious decision to take the leap and make it a, like a full-time lifelong pursuit was when I was 12. And I've been going ever since. I mean, take us back to 12-year-old Steph. Like, you know, where did that inspiration come from? External, internal, a combination? I think I was, like, in the middle of, like, a... Uh, I was, like, in middle school, so, like, in the middle of, like, a home ec or some type of academic class that was not interesting. Maybe earth science, who knows? And then I was, like, daydreaming about, like, my life as a musician and dreaming myself as, like, an artist and a rock star and traveling the world and the journey that it would take me on. And um, yeah, just, it just clicked. It was like, I don't know how this is going to play out. Like whether I'm going to be rich or whether I'm going to be poor, whether I'm going to be famous or obscure, like this is the path for me. And this is, I know what I'm meant to do and my purpose in life and such a young age to have that kind of revelation, but it's true. That's it. It's clicked at 12. I love that. Um, and that is, that is very beautiful on a lot of levels, but you also said you were bored in class and yes. now you're an educator. So tell us about um, being an educator. <laughs> it's so funny. Like when I had that thought, it was like a scary thing because I didn't see how. I just saw where. I just saw I was going to be doing this and I didn't know how. So I took a leap of faith. And I think for me as an educator, part of my motivation was to be the bridge you know what I mean like be the be the resource and the bridge to the to the to the lifestyle and to the culture that I so badly wanted to be a part of so I make it my business to like stay active in music and to like constantly explore and constantly learn and bring my findings back to the classroom and so you're getting actual living content you're getting living living and lived experience you're not just getting you know, a lot of times in my upbringing, I got a lot of teachers that would teach from the book and teach older information, and it didn't always feel relevant. And I remember I ended up dropping out of college because, you know, a professor of mine said, I don't know what to teach you. You're just, you got it. Like, mm. so, and I was getting into the industry around that time. And so my thing is, like, whether I'm teaching kindergartners, whether I'm teaching middle school, um, high school, college, wherever I'm, whoever and whatever I'm teaching, I'm trying to give the most relevant information, the most uh, the most thoughtful um, insights, so that people understand that I'm for them, and mm -hmm. that I want them to win, and that this is what I've tried, this is what I've also observed and seen, and here's how we can go about giving you a game plan to getting you on track to where you want to go. That's so great. Your students are so lucky to have you. Um, what are you teaching right now? I teach songwriting and social justice. Um, so it's essentially you're essentially you're teaching people pop song structure 
and like basically, you know, the mechanics and the mathematics of writing songs and like giving them the tools and the language to be able to do that. And then once they understand like the formulas and the structure and the theory of making songs and of music, it's like guiding them into processing the world around them. And like, what are your thoughts and feelings about like what's going on in your life? What's your thoughts and feelings about what's going on in the, in the world around you? And then, you know, guiding them into like really, really processing that internally and then incorporating that into their songs. And, it, you know, it, it's for me, it's like it's like uh, it's like guiding and, and cultivating the next generation of, of artists, activists, artivists to create freedom songs like myself. Incredible. Um, tell us what I don't know if I've ever heard artivist before. Yeah, it's definitely a, it's a, it's a, it's not reached critical mass, but it's definitely the same, you know, like a thing that artists that are also activists sometimes call themselves. Yeah, I'm not really that cool, so I'm not. <laughs> You're very cool. Thank you. I'm not up on that, though. So um, what does an artivist mean to you? Um, to me, it means somebody who's dedicated, who's committed to, you know, like Nina Simone said back in the day, like, artist is somebody who you know reflects the times around them you know what i'm saying and, and speaks about the things that's going on in their music and using their voice and their platform to speak truth to power so that's what i see as an artist or an artist who's also an activist and someone who just uses their platform for change incredible i love that you're teaching that class that is so yeah, cool um was activism always a part of your music no and i think you know I, you know, I had a career before taking the independent artist route. I spent, you know, 10 plus years behind the scenes producing and writing for artists, getting placements and doing the rat race of the placement game. Yeah. And, you know, after 10 years of like, you know, varying degrees of failure and success um, and breakthrough and breakdown, I, you know, I got to a point where I burned out and I was like ready to give it up and quit. And the thing that made me decide to keep going was that I wanted to do music with purpose, music with a message and work with artists that I truly believed in versus like the next whatever insert pop star name or mm -hmm. create the next insert trend of the time, make something that sounds like this. And it's, and like network with people in like this very shallow, um, I don't know, it was just very capitalistic and it was it just burned me out. And um, I decided that I wanted to do something with more purpose and that was to be the only way. And for me, along my journey of being a producer, I discovered you know, the, the role of being a teaching artist and that you can like teach what you know and give back to people and it's like meaningful and it has substance and it's just like, it's a very thankful job versus pr producing it's very thankless and it yeah. felt like this is contributing to the greater good and this is like a legacy thing and I was like 25 when I started being a teaching artist and I was like oh I'm actually getting paid for my time whereas a producer a lot of times you're working on spec and you're like trying to get a placement and you have songs on hold and like you're like basically at the beck and call of an A&R or a manager to hopefully get on their projects and it's yeah it's a lot and you put in the same, I tell people, you put this, the same amount of work that you put in for a placement that actually comes out is the same amount of work you put in for a demo. 
for a song that you know someone might like or might not like and may stay in their email and um, you don't get paid for that time so mm-hmm. for me it was important just to one not depend on the music business because it's just it's uh flighty and unpredictable the music business part but just realigning with my message and my faith and realigning with my purpose and doing purposeful work and doing music more as like passion driven. Like I'll do it when I feel it and, um, and I'll work with who I want to work with, not who I feel like I have to for a career play. That's so beautiful. Um, um, when it comes to place, place for me is like, my one-to-one game I said earlier is great. So like busking in the train is mm-hmm. works well for me. Playing in parks like Washington Square Park or like Union Square Park or like Central Park. Anywhere I, where there's people and there's more people that are earthy and grounded and hippie type bohemian people, they're going to feel me. I just need to be where they are, the location, yeah. right? So the place. So like going to parks, busking in the subway, um, farmer's markets, I might do that too protests like like being putting my myself as a product in the place of where people will be receptive to it um Mm -hmm. price um i do a lot of things for free as a way for to to create to build to build social capital but also awareness but then when it comes time to to actually charging sometimes i overcharge because i did so much stuff for free and because i feel like i'm in a sense, leveraging scarcity. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> maybe, like I said, someone else might regularly get a dollar for a song or whatever on iTunes because I'm leveraging my scarcity in a sense of my art. I can get a hundred dollars for something that someone would have got to pay the dollar for because I I keep it too close to the chest. Um, yep. Uh, product place. Positioning, I so that's part of marketing is positioning. I position myself as like, how do I position myself? It's like someone, like your friend. Yeah. I position myself as like a friend, a close friend, and like someone that like you probably would look up to, but like you want you are you you feel like you know them already. So there's like a familiarity. There's like a a benevolence, I guess, maybe to what to my brand. There's like just the interesting person that it's like is relatable. I guess those are like, and inspiring. Those are like things that are part of my, of how I position my brand. Definitely. And have you, have you thought about those P's before with yourself or did you just put that together now? I just did it right now. (laughs) Yeah. I just did it right now. Yeah. And, and so much of what you talked about was, you know, being your true authentic self. And I hope that's being taught in any sort of creative marketing class because it's true, you know? Um, What do you mean? Well, it it goes back to the, like, um, vision board parties in a park, right? Like, that's Mm -hmm. real. That was your idea. That's powerful. That's a way to connect with people. That's not like, how can I market to people? Let's get together in the park and do vision board. You know what I mean? But it is marketing, but it's genuine and it's authentic. Yeah, I mean, I, there was times, dude, there's been, there's been like things that maybe I did for marketing 
like intentional and it didn't work out. You know what I'm saying? Right. It, didn't, it didn't connect. Totally. Pe- people didn't show up and it didn't really connect with anybody. Yeah. But then there's like these, these things where I'm just doing it because I want to do it. That's and right. it's just, it's just from the heart. And it actually is way more impactful than the marketing attempt and effort or whatever activation or campaign that I had. Yes. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Like, okay, an example would be like something where I remember, I remember I didn't have enough money to roll out my project the way I wanted to. Mm. So what I started doing was these pop-up listening concerts, <laughs> and I would give people my album. I'd give them my phone. I would I would go to Washington Square Park, and I'd bring two pairs of headphones, one for me, one for the other person. And I'd scan the whole park looking for all the bohemian people, all the hippie people, all the hipster people, because that's all the people that I think would resonate. That's what I think my target is. So once I found them, I would slowly, calmly walk up to them and introduce myself, say, hey, I'm a musician. I'm getting ready to put out a project. I would love to get your feedback. Would you give me a minute or two to let me play you some music? And most of the time, because I targeted them, they were cool with it. Nice. I gave them a pair of headphones, and I gave them like a pen and a pad or an iPad to write down how they felt. Oh, and then that. after each song, I had like the feedback, plus I got like a video clip of them telling me their initial response and reaction to it. And so that was something that cost me no money, but it was really effective. And some of those people have come to shows. They've like, I still have relationships with them today. And that's like something that was like not like this marketing thing but it is marketing but it wasn't like generic and like dialed in it was something that I was like this would be kind of like a cool moment to share with somebody exactly that's so cool I'm gonna check out some of that content the only, so so the here's the trick though here's the trick though the problem with that it was a great moment on a one-to-one basis when I went to share it on social media it didn't do well people didn't mm. people didn't sit through all these testimonials of right. like people liking the music. So I didn't figure out a way to repurpose it in a way that would mm. drive traffic and, and, and like interest and demand on the product. But sure. in the moment, those people, they were, they bought it. They, they bought it. They listened to it. They followed me. I have all their information. They started coming to shows. I mean, it's hard yeah. to get people off the couch. So. Yo, the, you know what? There's been times where I've done like, shoot, I've done, giveaways raffle tickets and i would print out these i print out my tickets for shows and i print out raffle tickets show ticket might be 15 bucks i say hey i'm i'm raffling off some merch and some giveaways from a sponsor five dollars for that i've made over i've made 100 200 just from raffle tickets let alone wow. my hard ticket sales and let alone my actual merch sales oh i've never heard that idea Steph. <laughs> that's so good i love it but that and that's something that i'm basically raffling merch I already have or maybe I'm printing out some content that or I'm printing out like I remember my last album Power of Love I made a magazine I was inspired by Frank Ocean with his blonde he had a magazine that went with it I was like Mm -hmm. that's a brilliant idea so I made my own magazine and I said all right I have a limited amount plus I have my merch I'll pick three winners for this show and I'll print out x amount of fucking raffle tickets and is. It was, it was more so a way for me to problem solve paying for a band. Easily, if you're playing with a band, it's $400, $500 just for the band. Sure. So I'm like, man, the venue's taking 10%, 20% plus I have to pay this band. In order for me to make a profit, I have to think about some creative ways. So I did the raffle tickets. I would deliver tickets by hand to people and, you know, 
it worked out. I made a profit and I paid everybody and it wow. felt really good. Yeah. Brilliant. And I do this stuff all the time and I talk to a lot of people and so I don't hear new ideas often, but that is one, the raffle ticket thing and, and the hand delivering ticket thing is very, very yeah, cool. No, that's, that's a good, every show I do, I hand deliver it because I think that was me problem solving. Like, okay, my online, like my power of my calls to action are not that effective. Like if I just say, Hey, link in my bio, my engagement there is super low, but because I know my relationships with people are so strong, if yeah. I asked them, if I asked a random person to spend the night, they'd probably let me spend the night. If I said, "Hey, I need to borrow whatever money," people really love me, and they. If I asked them for something, they would do it. So the problem, the solve the problem of my online asking is not so great. If I go meet up with people, they'll probably do it. Yeah, and it's and it's content, and it's like a moment, and it's like special, and it's my, again for me one to one is my one to one is impeccable. Wow. Can you explain so the deliver? Sorry, can you explain the delivering tickets to me, just so I have my head around that? So basically, I'll, some venues will actually give you printed tickets. Yeah. And some venues don't. They only do online. So what I did was I would go to a. I would. Okay, one of the times what I did was I went to Google and Google like a, like a generic tip ticket stuff, like a like a Live Nation ticket. Yeah. I would take that ticket template, I would put it in like pages or Canva, and uh-huh. I'd like put my information in there. And I would make sure that everything, the date was right, the time was right, the venue was right, the address is there, the name, everything was on point. I would then print that, take that ticket, make it maybe per page, maybe four tickets per page, take that to a printing shop, print it front and back, and then cut them out. And then I'd make whatever, if I need 100 tickets sold or 50 tickets sold, I make my list of the 150, 50 people to 100 people that I know will buy it, mm-hmm. target them, reach out, got a show coming up, would love for you to get a ticket, blah, 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 I want you to come out. Then I'd make a checklist of all the people who are confirmed and said, yes, I want to come to your show. I try to keep in mind people who in the past said, yo, let me know when you have your next show. So that's how I fill all the slots. And then I take all the tickets and bring them to people. Wow. So it's like I pre, I have already have like a, 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 you need to kind of have a sense of like, and I've read in like music business books, like you're supposed to know like, like they talk about your, your a thousand true fans and sure. super fans and your mom is a super fan. Totally. Who else is that? Who else is mom level fan of Steph Reed? Like yeah. I have to think about that. Who's like beyond music. They just love me as a person. And that's like my first 10, 20 people is like, who just loves me and would do whatever I asked. And then after that, it's like, who engages with my posts a lot and like sends me nice compliments and comments. And that's the next batch. And then after that, it's like people I just met that was like interested. So then do you like schedule meeting up with them or how does that work? So basically I schedule, Hey, um, what time are you free? And I meet them at work or at their house or at their, their school, wherever they might be. I meet them where it's convenient for them. I take a picture with them holding the ticket. I make the transaction and I give them hopefully a, a, like a, like a, um, a raffle ticket as well. So great. And do they know you're delivering the tickets or do they? Yeah, no, no, no. Visiting? They know okay. exactly what it is. Cause like cool. they, they it's say, yes, it. I want to buy a ticket. Um, when, it, you know, I, I ask, when are you free? Then free this time. All right, cool. I'll come by on Thursday at seven o'clock to go get the tickets. And I try to route my, do my route in a way where I'm picking up and dropping off from people that are near each other. Wow. 
I love that. And then you're posting the photos. And they're right? posting the photos. Usually in my store, I used to do it on my feed, but they don't get, doesn't get much engagement. So I just, sure. I just do it in my story and I keep it on my phone. Which inherently promotes the show further. Yes, it does. Because then they also repost it. Exactly. So yeah, it, and it helps build a demand. So if there wasn't a demand from posting a flyer, you will inherently build a demand um, from posting that people are buying it and buying it. People, you can you can you can manipulate and cash in on people's FOMO. Like if you are showing that the thing you're doing is generating lots of interest, yeah. some other people but like, oh, I want to be part. Why don't you ask me? Right. So, but they wouldn't have done that if you didn't tip the scale a little bit. Exactly. So, so cool. Um, so back to kind of a traditional question. I yeah. loved all of that though. Um, you've gotten a lot of amazing uh, press coverage. That's um, how did that happen? Cold calling. Wow. <laughs> a lot of it's cold calling, like me sending pitch emails to like Fader, or Pitchfork or NPR or wherever, just all the places that I feel like I want to be based on artists that are similar to me in one way or another and writers that I've that have covered artists that are like me or make music with messages like mine or whatever variable it is. Like I try to target people where I feel like I would be a good fit, send a pitch email or maybe first I'll send like an email saying, Hey, I like your work. I've read this article. Um, would it be cool if I sent you something? Um, and other times I just go straight to it and I just say, Hey, I'd like to pitch this thing. This is the link. Let me know your thoughts. And then I'll follow up. There's that. And then I have my own list of, you know, press people I've met throughout the years. Great. And sometimes they write from they write stuff on me, and sometimes I may ask for a referral. Hey, do you know anybody at this outlet? And very rare, and even rarer than that, someone may refer me to somebody that they know. That's right. like super rare. Um, so it's like for me, it's a mix of like all those things of like building my contacts, me reaching out and trying to cold call people and build a relationship out of thin air, and then three once in a while, once in a very blue moon, I get a referral. So great. I love that. Um, you've referred to, uh, you've alluded to this a little bit, but how have you been performing live during the pandemic? And thank you again for por- performing at the hashtag I voted festival, which I am the founder of, um, which I'm only mentioning because um, I didn't really clarify that at, at the beginning. So if, if you're just listening to this podcast for stuff, which I totally get, um, I, I know you performed at that, but yeah, tell, tell me about how you've been performing during the pandemic. I hate online performance. (laughs) I hate it. It's the most awkward thing, but I found that it really can bring people joy. And I'm, you know, as much as it's, it feels awkward for me as a performer, I know that there are people at home that are battling depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. and feeling bored and isolated and disconnected from their loved ones. So seeing me on screen, singing a song that's like, super uplifting could make someone's day and it can like help someone to keep going so for me knowing that i'm able to give that to people in spite of the conditions and the circumstances is super rewarding um so i've done a handful of of of, uh, just a handful just a handful of like these shows and i think one of the most important thing about it is that you're able to give somebody hope. 
You know what I mean? I've done maybe two, sh- two, two or three shows in person since August, which stopped in October. So it was like a brief window, but those were so much more rewarding because there's something about seeing people and like people smiling. And, you know, during my shows, I ask people to hold hands and I ask people to hug and like I ask people to like turn, like it's very like church where turn to your neighbor, like tell them that they're loved, tell them that they matter. Mm-hmm. You know, people at my shows will cry and laugh and it's like a, it's a cathartic experience. And it's like, I like turning a room of strangers into friends. And, I love um, that. So it can be challenging to do that online because people can't see each other, but still yeah. the, the opportunity to give someone hope is still priceless. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Um, what does merch mean to you? No, it's so okay. <laughs> Yo, so it's re- music is the loss leader. The cost of production is so it can be so high. So the cost of hiring musicians, the cost of getting a producer, the cost of getting you know paying a co-writer cost of a recording engineer, the cost of a mixing engineer, the cost of uh, a publicist, the cost of a promoter, the cost of album artwork, all that, all those costs add up to thousands of dollars. I'm lucky I can do all those jobs by myself. I've taught myself. Yeah. But still, like there's some of the costs I'm, it's hard to avoid like a, a good mix. I don't, that's a price I always pay. Everything sure. else I do myself. So the amount so the amount that it costs to make art is really high to produce it at the level that you really want to see it done. Then the cost of what you get from like the DSPs from like the Spotify's and, and Apple Music's and Amazon, the, the money that you get from sound exchange, the money you get from BMI, um, the money you get from your own distributor for like your, your mechanicals, that is so low. You're getting literally a fraction of a penny for thousands of dollars spent. Right. So you're always at like this negative margin when mm-hmm. it comes to like <laughs> making music. However, merch, it might cost me $4 to make one of my merch hats. I mark it up. I can charge 15, 20 bucks and nobody's batting an eye at 15, 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's like I'm making 10 to $15 profit on, on a $4 investment when it comes to like, let's say... A hoodie. Say I get it made for twenty bucks. I can charge fifty dollars. It's a thirty dollar profit. Yep. These are wide ass margins, yo. Yeah. <laughs> Versus a reverse negative margin on a recording. You know what I'm saying? Maybe right. when it comes to like I've made the most money on music from live performance. Like I've gotten a thousand dollars to do a show, which is great. Five hundred dollars to do a show, which is great. Um I've gotten like corporate sponsorship, a couple thousand dollars for this. I've raised money from people, a couple thousand dollars for that. Those are like, or even t- producing sometimes could be a high, you know, I might get a thousand dollars or so, five thousand dollars or so to produce a song. Those education, you know, 10,000 here, 5,000 there, all these other things, the payout is so high. But when it comes to like a download or stream, dude, it's like, <laughs> It's like, it'll make you feel like, what are you doing this for? So right. when, I, when you ask about merch, merch is like an opportunity to like 
it's an opportunity to make a profit. It's an opportunity mm-hmm. to to brand yourself outside of it's again recontextualizing yourself outside of music. It's also like being part of someone's culture and their life on a day to day. It's yeah. also like a billboard and advertisement for what you do and who you are, what you're about. Merch is also like um, it's an entry point. There might be people who's like, I don't. I have people all the time. They don't know what I sound like, but they see me in the street and they see my motorcycle jacket and they see all my my my, my buttons and they're like, ooh, what's that? I like, I love your buttons. What does that yeah. say? And they they, it's a story. It's like a it's like a conversation piece. And I'm like, well, these are actually titles for my songs. And it's like, I love your message and I, I would love to hear your music now that I've seen these buttons. Can I buy some buttons? So merch is like. It's, it has so many layers to it, and it's so cheap to make a lot of times. So, merch is, merch is all the things I just said. I love it. Um, so, a few more questions, even though right. we're actually getting into the meat of this episode now. So, we're up to Chapter 10, Revenue Stream Checklist. Um, I asked you to be on this particular episode because it seemed like um, the revenue spreadsheet that I put into the book, which is available for everyone, it's just a, you know, open source Google spreadsheet that you can use yourself, um, that seemed to resonate with you. And that was particularly heartwarming <laughs> for me because I was like, is anyone going to use this this spreadsheet thing? But um, just, just a quick background on that. Um, that started, uh, I think it started because we took on an artist um, who had a lot of debt and she lives here in New York City and obviously the rents are wild. Um, and frankly, I just didn't think she could really afford her rent. So I almost wanted to show that not in an obnoxious way, but just so she could plan like, okay, this is what she can definitely count on, you know, monthly and project annually for income to try to treat this like a job in a good way. Um, and then I, I'd also taken on a national artist around that time. And I kept for both of them, I kept finding money and I was like, okay, I need to make a spreadsheet for my own brain. Um, and it, I thought like for my brain, it was, it was just easy to look at a spreadsheet once I plugged everything in and be like, oh, there's a blank column. That means money is missing. So that's what, that's what I put in there. And I had no idea if that would resonate with anyone, but it seemed to resonate with you. So yes. tell us about that spreadsheet, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. I think what I loved about the concept, just inherently just just as a concept, I felt like this is brilliant and it like helps legitimize your art. You know what mm. I'm saying? Like I remember growing up and like feeling like my my dreams were not where they were invalid because of how much I was getting paid or not getting paid. Sure. So seeing this is like, oh my God, this is legit a business and you actually have like the numbers to back it up and the data to back it up and like you can ha- create, start to create a trajectory for like where you want to go, which is like really empowering when I feel like a lot of the experience of being an artist can, can feel disempowering. So I loved the fact that it gave, it gave me a sense of knowing. Um, so I've been using, I've been using the spreadsheets to like really look at like all the areas of my brand that are generating revenue. So I can start to see the relation between like, oh my God, so music is the loss leader, but how, but it still creates social capital. So how do I monetize that in other ways? Where, where do I need to turn it up where it is more profitable so that I can have the luxury to create the art that I want? And um, so it, it resonated with me a lot because I think I've done a lot of this work 
with no spreadsheet, just kind of right. intuitively, like, and just in, in the moment. And this helps give structure, which makes it sustainable. Sustainability is a big, 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 big tenet in my work. Awesome. Um, so was anything, I, I kind of doubt it cause you know this stuff so well, but like, was anything missing when you filled out that spreadsheet? And I have the list here. I can, I can rattle through it if that's helpful rattle, to you. Like, rattle please. Okay. Um, distri- digital distribution. You're doing that through AWOL. Yes. Direct to consumer. I would say you're missing a little bit with, with Bandcamp and your website, but feel free to sure. correct yeah, me. I'm missing that. Okay. Um, PRO, we got, but, 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 yeah. but just argue. I've done, I've made a couple hundred dollars from like online concerts and that was DT. That was like me putting my cash app in like IG live. Nice. Or on either IG live or I did a concert with radio Woodstock and, um, yeah, just a 20 minute show. I made a couple hundred dollars. So, I would move that down to live. I would say your direct to consumer is um, that guy paying a hundred bucks for that demo. Song. Yeah, got it, got it. That's okay, okay. Yeah, I, uh, I could. Does merch fall under that or no? I had I have merch as a separate category. Yeah, I need to do better there. <laughs> and it's and you're and the I, the ironic part is you're so like you get the point of it, which is like yeah, I have a ten thousand person email list. Like yeah, I'm texting people. You know, like. Yeah. The point of direct-to-consumer is to continue to build um, to those databases. Because we're not going to get it through Spotify or anything else. But they prom- – I don't know. It's like there's this narrative. I don't know, man. Who's they? <laughs> Just the media. Like there's – you – Okay. So on one hand, you get like these op-ed articles about celebrity, insert celebrity writer, artist, producer who made this song and made a hundred bucks off of millions of streams, which is like depressing. But then you also see like these artists that are like going viral and like making a living and claiming to make six figures a month off of streaming. So it's like very a very feast or famine type of narrative. So I don't even know. I don't. Even, I don't know. I don't know. I think the answer is do both, um, yeah. and that's what I've been doing with this book in my own little world. Like, I did a big pre-order, um, yeah. and frankly, like the income was great on that. And I saw who all you people were, and I was fascinated by the big managers buying the book. But that's another story. Um, and then my book hit number one on Amazon, and I was like. Or maybe maybe before it did that though, I maybe it was like number twenty seven or something. I was like, oh damn! Like I had that moment of like, I drove all these people to my website. Thank you. But it did get to number one, and who cares if it's number twenty seven or whatever? Anyway, it's like my publisher <laughs> fell apart, and I there's no marketing budget, and I'm doing it, you know, all on my own. So I I think you can have both, and it's interesting when, and I know you get this all, question all the time is. I mean, all musicians do, but people ask me like, what's the best way to buy it? Like, as far as like my book goes, like, I don't care because there's value in buying it directly from our company's website. Like that's the highest profit margin. I see who you are. I'm very, not to be a creep, but like, I'm very fascinated by that. Like, I think I just had the first order come in from, 
I want to say South America, or maybe that's the continent I'm missing. But anyway, it's just really fast. It's like I've had orders from China. I've had orders from, you know, all over the world. So that's really fascinating to look at. At the same time, I am paying attention to those Amazon chart numbers now. So when people buy it there, they're buying it for a class or whatever, like that's cool too. That's also a good talking point. So for me, like I would say, generally speaking, my advice is like direct a fan, direct a fan, direct a fan, because that's the key to sustainability is like, connecting with them and then getting their info so you can keep them in the loop in the future. Um, but I think you can definitely do both. Got it. This is smart. Jesus. <laughs> um, what PRO are you with? I'm sure you had that one covered. I am currently with BMI. I spent my first um, 10 years of my career with ASCAP. And at the time, I was getting a lot more like mainstream placements and, and collaborations, and BMI was really good with connect, helping me connect with other writers. And, yeah, like, they had great networking events. Oh my god, yeah, they were. When I was like in that rat race, it, BMI was an amazing resource. Cool, that's great yeah. to know. Amazing, um, just, just doing yeah. great. They were great. They were great. Yes, and you're with Song Trust for publishing. I am now. Yes. Great. Um, although that's a revenue stream you knew you had to sort out. Um, you know what's funny? I knew about like Harry Fox and I knew about like mechanicals were a thing and I've been avoiding it for like the last 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because I just didn't, I was like, maybe I'll get it an admin deal or something and they'll find it for me. I don't feel like dealing with this. I think I was just sure. avoiding it. And then I finally said, you know what? I, sh I can't keep waiting for like, I gotta like make a move. Like I started thinking about right. like legacy and it's irresponsible to just not ever collect. Totally. Agreed. So thank you for, for, for like helping me. Help, you really helped me like make that choice and to like figure out a strategy of like creating options and thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, I assume you were signed up uh, with SoundExchange already because you talked about that. Yes. Yes. Great. Um, are you working with Patreon? You're like a living, walking, <laughs> breathing Patreon. So that's why I'm like, I don't know. If, if I have not. One. I have not. I did a, I did, um, this is, I did, I did a Indiegogo campaign before and I raised $1,500 in three days, which was great. Nice. Um, but I, I'm I think I'm scared of Patreon. I'm not Why? scared of Patreon. It, like, it's not like Patreon is scary inherently, sure. right? But there's something about being on the hook for something every yeah. week and every month is like, right. I don't know. I, I'm not, I want to get to that. And I created an account and I've just been trying to, I've been prioritizing other things. Like I'm building a nonprofit and I just got my company incorporated. And it's like, okay, when I, Get back to the Patreon thing because I've made an account. It's like, so what am I going to offer that's different than what I'm already giving for free? Exactly. Instagram? You're already doing it. I almost feel like, like in having this conversation with you, I almost feel like that platform is there for people that don't know how to do all the things you're doing and they need it a little bit more. I don't mean this in a mean mm -hmm. way or anything, but just need it a little bit more spoon fed to them. Yes, I can imagine. Um, I just got to think about how I'm going to, what are going to be the offerings on Patreon? Like, I have friends. I have a friend who makes $1,000 a month on Patreon. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, 
I just have to figure out what is going to be authentic to me and exactly. that can be a unique offering that is only on there. I have to think about that and get clear the same way I, would, I got clear on some of the other things. Yes. And you'll find that way or you won't, you know, like you said with TikTok, which I feel the same way. It's like, I'm not on TikTok. I'm not even on Snapchat. It's like, right. I do the stuff that, you know, I'm drawn to and works for me. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to Patreon. I, I will do it. I just got to figure out what, what's the value? Like, what am I doing here? Am I just, Hey guys, exactly. we're going live again. Like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Yeah. So I got to figure out what I'm going to do. Well, that's such a good reminder and lesson for people because I think a lot of times, especially over the past decade, as everything has moved to digital and these platforms, like sometimes, I mean, I haven't heard this in a while, but I, I could see this happening with Patreon. It's like people being like, what, I'm on Patreon. I'm not making any money. And, and like in the past, it was like, what, I'm on social media. I don't, I don't have fans, you know? So it's just like, how are you using these tools and platforms? Well, I've been planning to make this It's going to be basically titled The Power of Love. And I've been giving these micro grants to two women, two black women every month. So I'm like, maybe I could interview those same women. And that's, I already have over 12 women. If I did one a month, that's like enough content for one podcast a month for the rest of 2021. And we could talk about activism and artist, art, music, art, activism, organizing what's next for the future of this country and really get into that kind of stuff. That's something I've had in mind. I just got to make a plan and do it. I love that. Um, so we talked We talked about merch. We talked about uh, live a little bit. Um, do you have any of these bonus? I mean, you definitely do that, that I didn't think of. But do you have any of these bonus revenue streams? Are you doing VIP offerings, live recordings, any, any stuff like that? Yes. Um, so... I have a live album that I have a couple of, I have a bunch of, I have so much content over the last 20, I don't know, whatever amount of years I've had so much stuff. So what I do is I tend to leverage those things for either emails or for like raffles or like when I just put out a, the last thing I put out was an acoustic version of a song I have called Armageddon. And um, I was like, all right, I gave people, this is another cool idea. I gave, I made like a whole, I had like a note of all the songs I think I had in my vault. Videos, songs, and I had like this long list. I said, all right, whoever pre-orders my single gets to pick one thing from my vault that you can have that nobody's ever heard. Love it. And I gave them a screenshot of all the titles. That's all I could pick. They had to pick from titles. Whoa. So I said, these are all songs that either didn't make an album or it's just stuff that I've been just creating and I let people look at the titles and pick the thing that they wanted, like a, like a grab bag. So that was like a VIP experience. Um, totally. It went really well. It's shit. That was a great idea. Um, it is a great idea. VIP experience. Uh, what's the other one you said? A VIP or? Um, I said live recordings. Yes, I have lot. I got to figure out what I'm going to do with it and how I'm going to, because often you'll do shows and you'll get video footage just, just to have for a recap. Also, I've done shows and got audio, which I can use for albums. I think it's just, 
I always try to think about how I'm going to leverage this and make it and optimize it. So I have lots of it. I just haven't, I got to figure out what I'm going to do with it and how I'm going to use it. I hear you. Um, two more questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any like industry team members? Oh, last thing. <laughs> so the single that the, the, I did, a, it was a folk version of my song Armageddon. That was a live recording. And it nice. was like really dope. And I actually tried to pitch it for Tiny Desk, but there was no desk. And I thought I could get over it because it was dope. But yeah. I didn't have a desk. But anyways, that was a live recording that I did use. And it did chart. It got number, I think, 71 on iTunes folk chart. Um, and, you know, it was, again, that was repurposing already old kind of old content. It was a song I already had released. I just hadn't released it in that version. Industry partnerships. Uh, on my team, it's really, it's yes and no, because I'm not always on a release calendar. Right. I'm not always in an album or single cycle. I'm kind of sporadic with the way that I operate. So you could say yes because like I have people that I can call and they will pick up and that whatever I ask for they'll help me with um, mm-hmm. so yes yes I have industry people that are like Grammy winning people or own a publication or own an outlet or run a festival like radio station stuff like I have people in all pretty much every sector yeah lawyers it's just when I need them and yeah. I don't always, I'm not always on a, a release cycle, so I don't necessarily need their services, but they're friends, so. Exactly. But you're the CEO, right? You're, you're the CEO. Yeah, I love it. Um, finally, what does building a sustainable career mean to you? Hmm. Sustainable career means to me is, That's the hardest question. Jeez. <laughs> well, think of it this way. Uh, you know, I have my answers, right? Which is like data and, you know, email list, phone numbers, location. Um, I taught a class at NYU last year Ooh. and I had a... And, Steinhardt, and I was, Steinhardt or Clive Davis? Uh, Clive Davis. Oh, cool. You fancy. Um, and I was, it was, they were management classes. And so their final presentation was on what sustain, what building a sustainable music career means to them. Um, and shout out to Jack Hansen, who also worked on the I Voted team. He gave this phenomenal, passionate presentation on um, that building a sustainable, sustainable music career, whether you're artists or industry, is mental health. And basically just talking about self-care and wellness. And I was like, I just Ooh, A plus. Yeah. That's a, that's a, see, that's an aligned answer. Right. Yeah. That's alignment. Okay, sustainable. I'll start with the the more important things. So I'll say sustainability looks like staying mentally, emotionally, and physically fit. Yeah. So that I can continue to do the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, strange enough, it's like getting plenty of rest. Yes. It's taking plenty of breaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's having lots of like fun, and that makes it sustainable. Because then I don't, have, I'm not burned. Burnout is real, and I try to, I try to never, I try to avoid burnout as much as possible. Because it's yeah. hard to burnout could easily be a year of your time gone or months of your time gone. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So 
It's staying emotionally, physically, spiritually well. Um, it's also a sustainable career looks like still loving the journey. Yeah. And sometimes that means, and sometimes in order for you to love the journey and to keep loving the journey means you have to step away from it. Sometimes it means you pivot a little bit in the way that you go about doing it. Sure. Um, I think it's relationships because there are times when you're not inspired on your own, and but you'll be super inspired in a room full of people in a different context. So it's mm -hmm. like having the relationships and the network and the community, more importantly, the network, the community to like support you and that want you to be a part of what they're doing. Yeah, that's that's super sustainable. Like there's people that's I ha I'll give you two examples. Recently, I got called into a co-writing session to write a reggaeton song. And I was like blown away because I'm like, I don't, first of all, I don't even speak Spanish. Second of all, I've never made a reggaeton song. Third of all, I don't even listen to reggaeton, so I don't know how I'm going to bring value to this. But I listened and I observed and I like, you know, I just, I did the job and we killed it. You know what I'm saying? That was a situation I was not looking, I wasn't pitching for. Sure. It just came my way and I used my songwriting skills and my listening skills and it worked out really well. Another situation, that was something that, that was a relationship. It wasn't like a cold call. Another one is a friend just recently hit me up, works with Skillshare and said, yo, I want you to do some courses with Skillshare. We'll pay you. Here's, here's what we want. What you're doing is totally in alignment with what we want to do. And I was like, oh my God, I've been doing more and more online teaching. This is a perfect match and like partnership. So those, that came from years of a relationship though, that it never paid off in money but it just even this podcast right now we've been talking for months and months and months of yeah. just i always just check in and say how can i help you what do you need yeah. are you okay yeah. and like we're having this conversation now which who knows who it's gonna bless when whoever hears when, mm -hmm. when, when the person that this needs to touch and the person that needs to hear this who knows what a blessing that this conversation will be to someone else's life so i think i'm, I'm saying that to say sustainability for me comes from relationships and, and being connected to your community. Yes. Um, and last is sustainability means to me being able to, to optimize, to profit on your art and on your, on the value that you bring. And um, I, I'm saying that with the understanding that money isn't everything, but we need money to, so we need money to live and it's hard to make an impact if you're living in survival mode. So I'm an advocate for like, for like financial um, literacy and like black buying power and like mm -hmm. being able to be in a space where you can be empowered so that you can be a blessing to somebody else and so that you can powerfully do the work you're not doing. It's hard to do things and have a, a sense of power if you're in survival mode and you're like scrambling, trying to figure out where your money's going to come from. So yeah. financial um, stability and financial empowerment is like a big part of what sustainability looks like to me. I want to be able to, I, I, philanthropy means a lot to me. And in order for me to do that, I have to have more than enough for myself and be able to raise money from people that want to give. So right. financial empowerment is like really, really, really important for sustainability. Amazing. I love yeah. that. Um, I didn't expect this conversation to be this long, but I'm so glad it was. I loved every minute yeah. of it. I did too. I'm really. Oof. 
just I'm, again, you know, I've been saying lately, let women lead, and you are the living example, the living, breathing example of like what happens when you when you when you allow women to lead and you get out the way. Thank you. I I'm like in tears again. <laughs> <laughs> You're the, you're, the, you're, the, you're the truth and you're like you're so giving and you're so smart and you're so like driven and ambitious and you're able to do so much for so many people and you're able to impact so many lives and like it feels like you're operating from a place of abundance and that's like inspiring Wow. I, I feel like I'm like rubbing two sticks together in my underwear over here half the time so I really appreciate that I totally understand, but dude, dude, like your 2020 is so like legendary. And if you're doing that by yourself, imagine what you're able to do when, when, when you're not the only one that's rubbing the sticks together. Yeah. And, and I haven't been, as I told you, it's like, we have all these, we had over 200 volunteers and I voted make that festival happen. Um, we were 92% women, non-binary, people of color, or LBGTQ+. I mean, it, to me, it just defined, like, you know, collectively, like, be so good, they can't ignore you. I, I just couldn't be more proud of this group, that's for sure. Wow. And they, they, you enrolled them into your vision. I mean, they enrolled themselves. I think it's, it's a, it's, it's. So obviously it, it just, I can't think of the right word, but I'm trying to say like representation, you know, like Kevin Lyman teaches at USC. He's like, none of my male students are applying. And I'm like, we like guys too, you know, like, but they see, you know, a hundred percent women at, on the executive team and they see themselves re reflected on the team and in the leadership. And, and that's why they so enthusiastically apply. And that's why we need to promote, invest in people of color, women, like it's, it's, yeah, it's just, I, I, like I said, I see that with, with the students that, um, so enthusiastically volunteer and, and, and want to help with this work. I, I, it's, it's imperative that we empower the disempowered and that we empower the people who've been disenfranchised because they're the ones who change the world. Agreed. And they keep me going. Like I said, it's like, honestly, this will come out in January. By the time this airs, I Voted Georgia will be announced and, and in the books. And I, I I couldn't have physically or mentally done it without this team being like, we're doing this. I'm like, we don't have a budget. They're like, we're doing this. I'm like, okay, we're doing this. Like, how can I say no to that? Wow. So freaking inspiring. I'm like, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing this interview and also looking forward to what you're go, what you've got going on and what you're going to be doing next and ways in which that we may connect and like collaborate again. Thank you. Same. One last thing. What, what's next for you? What is next for me? Um, I don't know. I'd love that question. So that's why I didn't have it like written. It's like, you just, you just shared a million amazing things and it's like, that's not enough for people. <laughs> like, right. Right. No, no, I get it. Um, so I'm in the process of getting my nonprofit, the power of love project, getting that become turning that into its own 501c3. That's great. Um, so that I continue to do the work that I'm doing and scale it up and get like a board of directors and fundraise and be able to do that work full time. Awesome. So that's what I'm working on right now. That's 
the big thing. Aside from that, it's I'm working at my own pace on my next album. It's the follow-up to my Power of Love Experience album. It's called The Hope for Humanity, and it's really good. It's so damn good. And um, every time, every day I get the chance to work on it, it inspires me, and I'm, like, super excited about just the way that it's coming together. I'm just loving the process. Like, I'm listening to the songs where it's, like, a really good hook. The verse is solid, but then there's, like, a word or two that's, like, just me mumbling a melody. And I'm, like, it still feels so good where it's, like, not finished, but it feels so good. And I'm just, yeah, so that's, like, finished. Working on that project slowly, starting to take on new co-writing and co-producing collaborations as they come. What else is next? Um, just continue to change the world, man. One, one, one day at a time in, in the different arenas, the in different spaces that I occupy. Thanks again for listening to today's podcast episode. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to remind you that today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website and EPK for your music. And just to add some editorial to that, I mean, obviously there's plenty of website platforms out there, but it's so nice to work with one that's specifically designed for musicians and what you're doing. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including Dozens of fully customizable templates. So if you don't know how to code or you don't know graphic design uh, like me, I'm saying I don't know graphic design at all. Um, it's nice to have those templates. Tools to sell your music and merch commission free. That's super huge that it's commission free. I don't know anyone else that does that. Commission free crowdfunding and fan subscription features. That's also super nice because, again, I don't know any sort of crowdsource or subscription outlets um, that don't charge a commission, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, and integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more so you can easily add content from your other online profiles. And again, that's super nice. You know, you can sell your, your Bandcamp, your music via Bandcamp directly, embed your YouTube videos. I know artists really love Bands in Town for live shows, so that's all super handy. And I would say like fundamentally, you know, I don't want to say like more important than those other things, but they have live support from their musician friendly team seven days a week. So again, if you, if you have questions, it's really nice to talk to someone who understands what you're going through and not just like answering calls from, you know, people also building websites for their restaurants or whatever. Plans start at just $8.29 per month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast listeners, that's you, can go to bandzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code SUSTAINABLE, S-U-S-T-A-I-N-A-B-L-E, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code SUSTAINABLE. If you want to check the spelling, you, you can Google that word. So uh, thanks again for listening, and we're going to wrap up right now. And where can people follow you to maybe, if they're lucky enough, get a ticket hand-delivered in the future, if, if they're nice enough? That's beautiful. Um, so my website is imstephreed.com, I-A-M-S-T-E-F-F-R-E-E-D.com. My Instagram is at imstephreed, and my, you can text me, 
646-846-2129. That's my super phone number, and I do respond to everybody. You can just also DM me on Instagram. Just reach out to me. I'm accessible and I'm friendly. Brilliant. So amazing. Well, thank you again for your time, Steph. And yeah, so that wraps uh, the chapter 10 uh, episode of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. Thank you again to the incredible Steph Reed, and we will catch you on the next episode. Have a great day, night, wherever you are. All that good stuff. Talk to you soon. Cool.